0: Welcome back to another Film Friday here on the Dunkle with Dom podcast, Chris. Long time no see. I think our last Film Friday was all the way back in August with recap, but it is good to have you on for another special episode.
1: It's great. I love love doing these. It's really fun. Of course, one of my favorite movies. Uh, we're we're gonna go over now. Moneyball. You love to see it. You love to see it.
0: Yeah, well, my first question to you, because I I reached out to you, of course, via text of like, what movie would you rather do? And you gave me a list of options here. And we ultimately went with Moneyball in the end, made in 2011. I've never, it was one of those movies kind of where like, I forgot it happened because it just happened like at a weird time. And I wasn't into movies kind of, you know, a decade ago. What's the reason why this is one of your favorite movies, just straight up?
1: Yeah, so I saw this movie, I think two years ago, right? So I didn't see it when it first came out. I was like 10 years old. But um, yeah, I, I saw it two years ago and like I'm, a, you know, like, I'm a really big baseball fan. And one of the biggest like questions I've always had with baseball is like, why isn't there a salary cap in the MLB? Right. So this is really like a movie that's um, that really showcases the flaws in that, but also how teams like the A's who are, you know, smaller markets, how they overcome that. So, yeah, I'm a really big baseball fan. I'm a really big film fan. And this kind of combines the two in a really nice way, really cohesive way. So, yeah, that's, that's why it's one of my favorites. And that's why I thought we could do a really good pod on it, because you and I are both of that, like, same mindset with sports and
0: movies. Well, the other reason why I wanted you on is that not only are you a baseball expert, but you're also, like, a sports management ex- extraordinaire, where we both know the general gist as, like, the everyday sports fan of, like, oh, valuing certain players based on contract and age and skill set, whatever, for different leagues for you know different franchises and the one thing that stood out to this movie in this movie and you can comment on this is that there's a lot behind the scenes for teams that we really don't see when it comes to like the gm calls we see in the movie when it comes to you know how teams value players and i think that second point especially where this is more than a game it's like it's like chess where you know it's kind of like every move literally makes or breaks your franchise whatever sport it may be
1: yeah, I know, of course. Like, I got chills. It's, like, it's, it's true. Like, yeah. you, this movie really shows you how, like, how many, just how many games are won, not only on the field, but, like, in the front office, right? And, and you, you mentioned it. That's my, I think that's one of my favorite scenes in, in any, in all the movies that I've seen. That's one of my favorite scenes when, um, when Billy's calling up all the other GMs and he's trying to, he's trying to trade, uh, you know, one of his players that, that's not, you know, conduct wise, isn't really behaving the best. And he's trying to get rid of him and he's calling all these different teams. He's leveraging like that to me is one of the best scenes. It really showcases like the inside of the front office. Right. And no, you you said it, you said it best. Like it it shows you, um shows you the front office. It shows you the behind the scenes that, that the everyday sports fan might not really be paying attention to, especially with a team like the A's who really, you know, they haven't been crazy relevant uh, in major league baseball, I guess, uh, since that point and up to that point, really. Uh, but yeah, no, it's 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 an awesome film, and it really showcases that part of the front office aspect.
0: We'll get into kind of why both of us like this film, because I really, really enjoyed it. But a couple of big picture things stand out to me and we can break each one of them down. The first thing that was extraordinarily crucial is the vowing of players, because in the NBA, we've seen this before. How, again, there's all these what if scenarios of, you know, what if this team signed this player and what if, you know, this person did that or this team did this. My favorite what if scenario ever in NBA history involves our own Miami Heat, where I don't know if you remember Anthony Carter, but this guy was on our team in 2004 and had a player option for, I think, $3.5 million. I'm going on a little bit of ramble here, but long story short, his agent, Bill Duffy, forgot to give the contract to the Miami Heat to accept the player option for $3.5 million. And you might be asking, well, what's the big deal with Anthony Carter and $3.5 million? Miami used the money in that offseason to sign Lamar Odom and then traded him with the other pieces for Shaq. So in other words, it's it's crazy how like sports works where it's like one thing leads to another or vice versa, not doing something leads to another. We really see that in, that in this movie where it's like, even though it looks bad on paper at times, certain moves do have certain purposes. And On the contrary, there is a risk, of course, in not valuing the right players correctly or not drafting somebody because of whatever or not taking a flyer on somebody, valuing a person or a player for your team and for that context of the franchise is so critical to a sports franchise's success.
1: Of course, and, and what this movie does a really great job at and something that baseball has really had to um, adapt to, right, since, since this is co- like how cost-effective a player is and what, what uh, you know, what makes a good baseball player, right? And baseball is really, everyone knows it. It's the biggest flaw in baseball. It's stuck in its like really traditionalist roots, right and it doesn't want to grow so what Billy does right and what um what Jonah Hill's character do in this movie is they they kind of take that a step you know in the right direction and they're like we got to avoid like oh you know his his size he, he's too old it's about efficiency right and they break it down like what makes a good b- baseball player and what's going to make a good baseball team is how often do they get on base right like like because that's how you score runs you score runs getting guys on base and moving them around doesn't matter like Oh, you know what? What what the eye tests say, right? You you get the the famous scene with all the scouts and they're all breaking down, like like Billy's tossing names on the board, like oh, I want this guy, I want this guy, I want this guy, and they're like that guy is like forty, it's maybe forty years old, or this guy's too short, he has like a bum knee, whatever, and he's like, but he gets on base, right? And that's the big part of that scene is he gets on base, so they they really try to shift from like the the eye test like physical attributes that really don't mean much in the current sport to you know statistically this guy does what we need him to do we need to replace this amount of home runs this amount of runs scored this guy gets on base and he can replicate those stats doesn't matter if like oh we can't you know he, his his shoulders not as not at what it used to be he can get on base right so it's really a shift from eye test uh scouting and you know like that really uh antique way of thinking in baseball that traditionalist thinking into the future right statistics
0: well, my, you, you kind of leaned into my next point, also one of my favorite lines from this movie that we'll talk about later, but it's the line from Jonah Hill where he says, your goal shouldn't be to buy players, your goal should be to buy wins. And in order to buy wins, you have to buy runs. Because the one thing we've noticed with baseball, and I love that you brought this up, is traditionalism. It is the oldest American sport professionally, older than basketball, older than football by miles. And as you said it best, a lot of the GMs at the time There wasn't a big emphasis on analytics. It was like, oh, this guy was a former all-star. We'll take him. Oh, this guy's a big name. We'll snag him, even if he costs like you know, you know, his cost efficiency, whatever, isn't too good. And what this, what's interesting about this is that we've seen this in the modern day how big analytics are with everything. Like you know, for basketball, how they have all these you know true shooting percentages and you know efficiency on players. And my favorite stat is that the NBA. Uh, experts have gone back into history and have looked at the all-time seasons and I've said actually some of these all-time seasons really aren't so great and the big one is Will Chamberlain's 50-point season where surprisingly it actually ended up being his worst offensive season because even though he was scoring 50 points he wasn't generating enough like kind of efficiently or helping out his team offensively and the bottom line is that analytics in the modern day has played such a big role in defining teams you look at any team pre-2004 pre-2010 especially this really isn't the case until this modern day where analytics now is the go-to strategy to find diamonds in the rough to get guys at value and more importantly to build contenders
1: of course and like you know you brought up Jonah hill's character and that, that line is one of the most important in the movie and it's true like those those big teams like the yankees and the red sox they're always going to have that money right? So let them spend on the name because what, what you want to do to win is you want you want to get guys that are going to be efficient, get you runs, like he says, and win baseball games, right? What what he's trying to avoid is like the name, right? The name value. Because whenever free agency rolls around, you look at the names. You don't look at like...
0: We, we, I, I, yeah, real we quick, assume. I call it the Russell Westbrook corollary right? where it's like everyone's like Westbrook, all-star, triple doubles, this and that. And it's like Look at the Wizards like right now, not to get all NBA, but it's like somehow he, he, the team is playing better without him, even, exactly. though, even though he was def- arguably the better player statistically. And we've seen this before with guys, like my favorite all-timer, and this is a forgotten thing, was the Toronto Raptors during the DeMar DeRozan, Larry era before they got Kawhi, had Rudy Gay, who's like now a role player, but before he was an all-star, near all-star, 20 points per game. They traded him so they got worse statistically but then like went on the hugest winning streak ever because sometimes it's not about getting the guy with numbers or getting the guy with the flashiest name. It's about getting players that can help help your
1: team. Exactly. Exactly. Because yeah, I know. And it's a little confusing because of the statistics thing, but like it's different when you value those statistics in, in, in uh, baseball and basketball, because in baseball, right. You have like on-base percentage of that stuff is way more, um, it has way more to do with scoring runs and like, winning like actually winning the game because runs are so scarce uh than it does like with Russell Westbrook Westbrook who does put up those good stats but you're right it's about the name like, like what you're talking about there's the name value and how that's not all that that matters it's about how he affects your team right and your strengths so like when when they're talking about like how at the beginning when they lose uh uh Damon and they lose Giambi right they need to replace the stats right it doesn't matter the name value let the big team spend their big money on the name value. They have to focus on the stats and they do an excellent job at that. And they go on that 20 game, you know, record winning streak uh, later on. So yeah, it's, it's, you have to, when when you're such a small market team, even the big market team should be doing this, but you know, they're all about Jersey sales and and keeping that money in. Not to say those big guys aren't going to be good players, but at the end of the day, when you're the Oakland A's, there's no salary cap like that. that's that's stopping you from competing with the Yankees, with the Red Sox, you need to adjust and you need to shift your way of thinking when it comes to, you know, who you're going to spend money on. You need the efficient guys that are going to help you out.
0: Yeah, real quick. That's the other thing I love about this movie that I'm glad you're mentioning. The uh, explanation, kind of the portrayal of big versus small market for sports teams. We see this with every league. The bottom line is that the New York's and the Los Angeles's. And those big city markets are going to end up more likely getting the big free agent, the major superstar, and the role of the small market. And I think what I love about this movie is that it says it is possible because people have to understand that analytics wasn't a big deal until kind of this mid-2000 era where... Uh, For basketball, they have like the Sloan Conference where we see like the rise of the introduction of, you know, these advanced stats baseball, especially where I'd argue they're by far and away the most advanced league when it comes to all things of like these statistics that really point kind of the true value of a player that I've never thought before. And then you mentioned an interesting point that I kind of want to hear your opinion on. So Unlike most sports leagues, baseball doesn't have a cap on salary, and that really affects the collective bargaining agreement and the contracts of, you know, a lot of these players. What are the general, for the most part, pros and cons of having a league not have a salary cap, just in the eyes of, like, you, like, as a baseball fan, but also somebody who cares kind of for the nitty and gritty of running a franchise?
1: Yeah, so, like – Essentially, what happens in baseball is that, yeah, there's no salary cap, right? Instead, they have a luxury tax on the teams that spend the most money, and they think that that's enough of a deterrent to where, like, okay, at a certain point, they stop. But the problem is that, like, although that's true and the tax, like, is sort of a deterrent because, obviously, you don't want to lose that money, it's so light that it really doesn't stop rich teams from spending that excess money or that over – like, on those overpriced players, right? Because at the end of the day, right, when it comes to the Oakland A's in this movie, they need to be cost effective. The Yankees can afford to splurge on players that might not be as effective for that money because they have more money coming in. But, but just listen to the stat, right? In 2008, the Yankees spent over $209 million on players and the Marlins only spent $21 million. And are you just saying just our Marlins? <laughs> on the Marlins, right? So just to put into perspective, Alex Rodriguez in 2008 made more money than the entire Marlins 25 players on their roster.
0: Yeah, well, well, real quick, and what I like about that is that it goes to show the power big markets have where sometimes even shitty contracts, like, to pardon the French here, but even, like, contracts that look horrible, it doesn't matter for a team that has so much money when they're generating so much revenue, like, it's hard to get value from a team like Oakland when there's a bunch of other LA teams or California teams compared to a team like Boston, where they can literally like light half their money on fire and still have more money by far and away than these smaller markets.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because like, w- w- we got to be careful with how we're talking about this, right? Because like G- no, nobody's saying that uh, Giambi and Johnny Damon are, are bad players. They end up having really good careers after this. Right. But what they're saying is they are not worth, what the Yankees are paying him and Jonah Hill says Jonah Hill's character says it too like let them pay him however much because they're overspending like we as a small market need to be cost effective they're going to sign him because they don't care if it's cost effective per se they can afford to overpay for him and overpay for four more all-star players right so it's their job as a small market to be
0: that cost effective um, to, to be cost effective like that we we have a little public audio message here to remind us from masking, but kind of let that go by. That scared the hell out of me. Holy crap! Yeah.
1: So there we again, go. <laughs> small market teams like the Marlins, like the A's, uh, who don't have that massive fan base, are the ones that have to be more cost effective in their spending because they don't have all that money to go around. And that luxury tax that does exist in baseball without the salary cap, it really doesn't do much uh, when it comes to spending, when it comes to the big budget teams like the Yankees and the Red Sox.
0: Well, on the apex of this is the choice by Brad Pitt's character to trade Carlos Pena. You're like, wait, he's a potential all-star. Look, we have him. He's young. We got him for this long-term salary if we resign him. And he's like, no, because we're better off getting somebody who's a better locker room presence who isn't so much of like a me first me guy and what I like about this movie also is that it shows the angle number one about how hard it is to be a GM because we're saying this like oh like why didn't this team do this but it's a lot harder than people think sometimes it's really just luck and the other thing is that analyzing players is a lot more than just statistics and even the advanced metrics it's always the how does he fit within the context of the team there's of course the the issues of, you know, the guys that want the next contract, the next, you know, the big stats, the net. he's always looking for the individual unless for what the franchise wants and that decision, especially, but also some of the moves we see with this team, especially, it kind of leads to what we see now with the, of uh, these other professional leagues of like, you can't really rely on these me first guys anymore. You have to do this through a team. It is so hard to win when you have this one centralized figure, this heliocentrism around your franchise.
1: A hundred percent. And uh, like what, what you were saying with the, um, the players wanting that next contract and playing for the next contract. What what kind of uh, the, the downside of all this is that most of the time in Major League Baseball, because of the lack of, of salary cap and because those big teams have more money to spend. If you've got those good players on the small market teams like a Johnny Damon, like a Giambi. That tends to be the small market team, tends to be the jumping off point to somewhere else. So you have to use, you have to capitalize on those players while you can. Right. Well, I mean, Same and thing. real quick,
0: look, look at the NBA where, you know, every superstar in every small market has basically jumped ship after every four to eight years. And they, like Anthony Davis, James Harden, where it's yes, like but- they're always like looking like two steps ahead instead of just focusing on the team right now. And the big one, of course, and you know, this is Ben Simmons, where it's like he's getting paid over $30 million to play basketball for Philadelphia, and he has played absolutely zero games to this season. And it's like, is this the point we are at in not just the NBA, but also league history? Because we're even seeing this with the NFL now, low-key, where some players are like, hey, I want out. I will not play if you do not give me a new team or trade me or whatever. We're kind of seeing that low-key come back to these sports just a little bit.
1: And that's that goes back to what we were talking about about the locker room presence, right? And about the here and now, and not focusing on the here and now, uh, which is winning baseball games, winning basketball games for the team that you're currently playing for. Um, and just going back to uh, the what we were talking about before with 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 the the players moving on from those small market uh, small markets like Anthony Davis. Um, we see it like we saw it in baseball with the Marlins, right? Like Stanton, amazing player, MVP winner in Miami, and then he leaves Miami to go to the Yankees and signs like, a, I don't know how many hundred and million
0: dollar contract deal. Yeah. <laughs> and then like, to
1: what did the Marlins have to do there? Okay. They're star players, John, unfortunately, you know, the incident with Jose Fernandez, he passed away before that, that was like their ACE. Then you have, you know, Christian Yelich who is an MB, MVP caliber player. You're like, okay, well, you know, we're, we can't pay him this large amount of money that we're going to have to pay him. Uh, and it's not going to be worth it because we don't have any pieces around him. So what do they do? They move him to Milwaukee where he becomes an MVP and he's having an excellent career. You know, Stanton hasn't been the same because he's injury prone. But you you have to move on from these players at some point because you can't pay them the amount of money unless you win now and you grow as a market. But Miami isn't necessarily the best market for that because, as we know, you know, there's not – there's not many hardcore Marlins fans in South Florida because they haven't won anything since 2003, and they made the playoffs one time in the last, like, 15 years, so it's, it's hard to do that. It's hard to do that in baseball when you have the Yankees and the Red Sox uh, and, you know, other teams of the same caliber that are eating up that money.
0: All right, we should move on from uh, all of the historical baseball analysis because we're 20 minutes in this spot and we have not even talked to the film yet. I will say one more thing kind of to pre-contextualize this film because I think it is important. I'm not a huge guy into sports movies because I always feel like they're super cringe or they're like more like comedies. I've never seen, it's very hard, long story short to produce a sports film like from the ground up where it's a lot of acting, a lot of kind of, you have to make it up with realism and also still have that movie magic. And this movie, and we talked about this before the pod, kind of reminds me of like The Post or like one of those types of films where it's like a historical account, but it's a sports version. And it also kind of reminds me of like the documentary, like A Last Dance or, you know, the Celtics-Lakers best of Any's, but without the interviews, where we kind of get like this combination of real footage that they use for the games the the cool shots that we have, like with the black kind of around them with the white dim light on the players. And then the actual appearances of the actors, it really the pacing and the the production overall of this film is by far what makes this a arguably one of the top what like four or five sports films ever. Cause it's definitely up there if you consider all those factors.
1: Yeah, it's it's gotta be right. And that's such a it, it, it's like like with the posts and we we're talking about with um with recount like which we reviewed before, it's it's one thing to be somebody that like us that while those events are happening can watch it from the outside, right? Like the everyday person can watch those events happen from the outside, can watch it on the news, can watch the games. But it's another thing entirely when they take you into the room, you know, where everything's going on, where the decisions are being made and where you get a, an account of what actually happened behind the scenes. And it's amazing how they do this year. Obviously, like when you have actors like Jonah Hill and, uh, and Brad Pitt uh, and I think, you know, we see a young Chris Pratt in this movie. Oh, we'll get like,
0: into the acting. It, it is surprising. surprise. Well, we'll, it, we'll it just adds to that.
1: <laughs> right. And when you see the production value, too, I mean, like this movie, um, you know, we talked about how the A's, right, they had their payroll of $41 million. Moneyball was a $47 million budget. So it was $6 million more than the team that they were, you know, talking <laughs> yeah. about. But yeah, no, it's an amazing film. It's shot really well. Like you said, I mean, uh, it, it mixes real footage like from the games but also like it it adds that sense of drama with the dim shots with the you know lights from the stadium on chris pratt when he's hitting a home run uh t- towards the end of the movie like it's you can't beat that when it comes to film
0: so like we mentioned this is a 2011 american sports drama film it's based on an actual book written by michael lewis uh in 2003 to talk about the 2002 season that's mentioned in this movie where This A's team kind of starts from the ground up, uses the analytics move, and goes from one of the worst teams in the league to a 100-win team that almost makes it to the World Series. So it's kind of like that whole recount. You mentioned it, but the the resume for this movie for directing and acting is absolutely incredible. So Bennett Miller directs the movie, two-time Oscar nominee, and then Aaron Sorkin helps write it. And if you don't remember Aaron Sorkin, because that name's familiar... He gets nominated for an Oscar for The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I think it's like a recent movie that's been super duper good, awesome. The Social Network, which is a awesome movie about the Facebook saga and, you know, a classic uh, all-time drama. You combine those two, and then here's the actor list. You have Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, Philip Hoffman, a young Chris Pat, and Robin White. You combine that. Big, big names that somehow all fit together. I know we said this a lot in the pod, but I think for this movie... Because we get into this later, I feel like Brad Pitt's the only guy who could play that role. Like, is I feel like there's no other guy even close that could fit what the general manager like description was. Unlike Brad Pitt,
1: 100. Like he really encapsulates, uh, you know, like Billy Bean, and, and like in the decision making and the phone calls, like that attitude that he has, uh, towards you know getting his job done. <clears throat> and Jonah Hill's spectacular too. But again, Brad Pitt, like phenomenal in this role uh, he plays a real human being that like has existed before you know incredibly well and he, he adds his own you know Brad Pittness to it with it. You know, the way he says the lines yeah. like uh, <laughs> the, the emphasis on on like in the phone calls for the trades and stuff and that attitude he has like trying to trying to get things done and trying to move players around um really really well done especially that character as a whole really because you know that, that Billy Bean story on its own is, is uh, one that is very popular in baseball and his transition to be a GM too it's and, and they kind of t- show that in the movie too um, where he's this really big prospect I, I think Brad Pitt plays that really well um, and I kind of like self-doubt that he kind of has too uh, w- with his past and not wanting to make those connections with the players because he knows how fast you know decisions have to be made and people have to get moved around I think he does a really really good job at that.
0: By far and away, my favorite aspect of this movie, and we can get a laugh at this, is the resume of the actors. So here's the list of actors and their accomplishments. And what I like about them is that all the actors here are either at the peak of their powers or are about to be at the peak of their powers. So Brad Pitt. Is a seven-time Oscar nominee. He's literally in the middle of the apex. It's after he's been in movies like Fight Club and Seven and some of those films, but before movies like, you know, Fury, 12 Years of Slave, and of course the recent one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. You have Jonah Hill right after Superbad and right before, right Wolf, before of Wolf, Wolf of Wall Street, Street yeah. which is absolutely insane. And then he's also in 21 Drum Street a little bit later. So, Talk about getting Jonah Hill at the right time, like right before back-to-back awesome movies. You have Chris Pratt before the Zero Dark Thirty Jurassic World era, which is like the perfect time to get Chris Pratt. And then now, of course, he's Star-Lord in this Guardians of the Galaxy. Again, you get him right before the prime of his career. Even Philip Hoffman, who plays the manager of the A's, Art Ho- uh, Howie. I think Howie is his name, Art Howie four-time Oscar nominee and he's in all these 90s classics Boogie Nights, Patch Adams and but he's also in some movies later like The Hunger Games so it's like you get this long-standing actor he's the only kind of old actor in the film and then even Robin Wright plays in all these different roles including like Blade Runner and she's in House of Cards for like five years so it's crazy look I mean if you look at it from the bottom line Brad Pitt's in the middle of his prime Jonah Hill's basically about to start his prime Philip Hoffman is arguably toward the descent of his prime and Chris Pratt's just about to begin his prime that is absolutely awesome timing for a film like this where it's like they get all these guys that kind of have the right time and it makes for the right film
1: 100 percent, yeah and like you know it's cool to go down the resumes and I love like when I'm looking at movies and I see actors that are in like just different films that I love like like this movie I had no idea that Chris Pratt was in it until I watched it and then I, again, I'd watched it like two years ago. So this is already like Jurassic World, Avengers, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. So I'm like watching and I see Chris Brown, oh, Star-Lord, you know, like it's awesome. <laughs> and, and again, the awards and, you know, Jonah Hill being in Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, let's talk about Jonah Hill for a second, like the caliber of actors that he has worked with that's just made him better, like going from Brad Pitt to Leo, like back to back. That's I mean, that's awesome.
0: Well, how about the role real quick where he goes from super bad where he plays like this a-hole high school kid to this role where he's this Yale economics like student who just graduated. it's like the train, like that is two like completely different sides of the acting spectrum. And he pulls it off. And I think I'd make the case that the acting from Jonah Hill is more impressive than Brad Pitt because I think Jonah Hill's at least is more valuable to the film. I don't know if we want to have that debate, but it's it's definitely a case because man, Jonah Hill like. He got a nomination for a reason. And it's also why it's like right before kind of the beginning of his real career with film.
1: I agree because I think here we see a lot more of Jonah Hill's like versatility, right? Because Brad Pitt, like at this point, you know Brad Pitt has this in him and he is, he almost like is this character. Uh, And then you see Jonah Hill and he's like, again, he goes from, you know, super bad and then he's about to be in Wolf of Wall Street where he's a completely different character. Here he's like a very like, at the beginning he's a quiet really like kind of nerdy like he's just starting out with the indians i think it was with the with the cleveland indians right and he's like nodding like yes you should you should move this guy no, no don't move <laughs> this guy right like he's really shy and then we really see him come out of his shell uh towards the end with billy and yeah i know it's just like like the progression that he makes throughout the film is uh, amazing again like I, I think i agree with you that i'm more i'm more impressed by jonah hill's performance in this than brad pitt but they're both like excellent just Jonah Hill shows his versatility uh here a little more
0: so if we get to the actual movie itself uh one of 18 films this year to get two Oscar noms the most impressive one of course that you get six nominations in the end tied for third most this year so again when you consider some of the movies like within this year it is absolutely incredible and you have I think this was the year of this was the year of Lion King but I know there's some other big films like the Descendants. a couple other big ones. So again, it had like a pretty good standing when it came to the Oscars uh, in terms of the nominees, best picture, of course, Best actor for Brad Pitt, best supporting actor, and then best adapted screenplay uh, in terms of the money. I mean, you said it best so it already in terms of the budget. It was I th- what did you say forty five million dollars I think it was I think it was forty seven forty
1: seven
0: yeah forty seven million and it made uh one hundred and ten million dollars worldwide so again in terms of the profit absolutely nuclear um and the approval rating online is ninety four percent so again we're talking like it, it was very hard to dislike this movie I kind of I think we'll see toward the end it's very hard to find something I'm that's wrong with the film so that's kind of the gist of it is there anything else we need to kind of go over are we ready to get started with the actual film uh, half an hour in. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so kind of like going based off, you know, what you're saying, like, it's really hard to not like this film, I think, and, and going into the, what we're going to talk about now, like, this film, right, if you're if you're a sports fan, if you're a baseball fan, you're probably going to love this film to what it, like, and what it shows you of the front office and the behind the scenes part of sports. But overall, like, this movie is an underdog story that I think everybody can get behind, not just sports fans, right? It, yeah. it, right off the bat, one of the first things they show you is the Yankees budget compared to the A's budget. And right off the bat, like, you're already set and you know that this is going to be, like, an underdog story. You know, and David versus Goliath, like, they they need to find a way to be able to compete with the you know, upper-caliber uh, budget baseball teams.
0: Yeah, real quick, because I'm glad you brought that up. I totally forgot that. Because audience-wise, what's weird about this movie is that typically sports films do horrible because you have to usually know about the sport. But this is just a good story in the first place. You don't even need to know about baseball. Like, I, didn't even, I don't even know how the salary cap or any of the – bargaining contract agreements work in baseball compared to another sport. And yet I understood what was going on perfectly just because they explained it so well. And the other thing I like about this movie is you said it's an underdog story and usually underdog stories always do well. And what I kind of like about this movie, one last thing is that, because this uh, was on a review online that I read is that they said something along the lines of like, what this film tells you is that a computer can sometimes assemble a team better than humans which is again for 2011, like, holy shit, like given what's happening now, technology, just like, whoa. So we'll get into that a bit later. Uh, We start off with the main film with the introduction scene, showing the clips of the 2001 season. They lose to the Yankees, like absolutely blitz. And my favorite shot, and you can elaborate on this, is that shot of Brad Pitt in the empty stadium, just pondering, like trying to like hear the, the call of the tape and look at the game again, really does set the mood for this film.
1: Yeah, uh, that's one of my favorite parts of that character is, and it's, again, it, it shows like the depth that Brad Pitt plays his character in, and, and ultimately like what, what he stands for is like, he doesn't like watching the games. Like, and they tell you that again, right off the bat, like he doesn't like having that attachment to it. And he, as a, ba- a former baseball player, is like stressing himself out. He would stress himself out if he was there watching, right? Because he doesn't want to have that connection. And I think that sets up the rest of the movie really well because as a GM right you have to move players you have to you know cut ties sometimes take some guy to the minors Um, and yeah the shot of him in the empty stadium it's dark and he's kind of just like listening to it and he gets frustrated it's you can't help but like really resonate with that guy like oh he's really you know he's upset about what he just what what he just heard because obviously you know he's the GM of the team and you have to see like okay that just happened He's about to lose two of his best players that got him to that point. What's he going to do now? Like, he's at at this really low point, and now we have to see him, like, ascend.
0: Well, and then this leads into the beginning of the ascent, which is the first GM meeting with the rest of the scouts, which I love these meetings because they're so funny with, like, the, uh, like, which players are on your list. It's like, we spent six hours, or I think it was six weeks, compiling all these players for you, and you want to sign this guy or whatever. But the first meeting is hilarious because they're like, we need to replace this guy and this guy and this guy who do we go for and one of my favorite quotes in this film so it's the reason why I have it up there is uh, I'm trying to find it uh, here the, the problem is that there are rich teams there are poor teams then there's about 50 feet of crap and then there's us and it kind of sets the, the point of the film which is that it it's hard to be a small market team and the build-up to building a contender is definitely more different than a big market team like New York
1: yeah, exactly. And again, I think that line is a very much like a, a, the way he delivers it's a very Brad Pitt way of delivering it with like the attitude of like, yeah, you know, we're, we're, again, we're, we're terrible. Like we, not that we're terrible, we, we don't have the, the means to compete like everybody else does. So we need to figure out, we need to change something because again, that traditional way of viewing baseball with like the eye tests and the, you know the, the physical traits per se aren't necessarily what we need to look for. We need to look for, you know, cost-effective players. We need to look for efficiency. Right. So that's, again, what, what we've been talking about and what um, what he really stresses to the scouts is like, we need to get those runs on the board. We need to find people that can get on
0: base. I will say I'm glad you brought that up. The traditionalism of baseball thinking pre 2002 is really showing this one where it's like it's a big name. Why don't we want him? like that kind of is the logic for especially for football, this was a big deal in the early 2000s as well. And for basketball in, like, kind of the 80s and 90s where teams would just sign players because the name was cool or because he had a former career four years ago. Like, why bring him back? The, the mindset definitely changes in this film by far and away.
1: Yeah, and again, like, and sometimes those big market teams do that because it gets your fan base excited. When your fan base gets excited, they want to go to the games. When they want to buy jerseys. They want to support the team, buy merchandise. And what does that do? That it increases your budget. In baseball, there's no salary cap. When you have an increased budget, you can spend more, and it's just a rotating cycle. When you're a bad team like the A's, you're not in a city that really cares about baseball that much, right? Like, they share their stadium with, at that time, the then, like, Oakland Raiders. Uh, people aren't going to those games. Like, if they miss the playoffs, they're in a massive stadium. Maybe 500 people are going to that game, right? So while the Yankees have that cycle of signing big names and being able to compete at that level, the A's – aren't at that level because they don't have that passionate fan base, those merchandise sales, those like ticket sales, any of that.
0: And then this leads us to the, the next meeting in the scene, which is with the Cleveland Indians, where we kind of get the hint of Jonah Hill's character where, He's off in the corner, and every time, like, the Cleveland GM says something, like, he'll look at Jonah Hill and be, like, nodding yes or nodding no in agreement or disagreement. And the one thing I noticed, I didn't realize this is how baseball general managers talk to each other, where it's like, are you trying to fleece me? No, I'm not trying to fleece you. That's why I'm offering this. Like, the the, the little shenanigans are actually kind of funny and very satirical for GMing, if you will, for any franchise. Exactly. Like, it shows (laughs) you –
1: I just love how, like, pulls back the curtain on that and how he's calling – like – in that in that scene in particular he's kind of just like like inquiring right but like in the other scenes when he's talking to the different gms and he's like he's he's like oh well they need this position so let me go talk to this guy and see if he can get me that guy so i can send him over there right like like the the the, um (laughs) how many like wheels are turning while it's going on but this scene again awesome like the way they're talking about it and like not trying to be the guy that gets like that loses a big player right because you never want to be that guy that loses out on, like, a Stanton or a Yelich or, like, a really good player or Bauer or anybody. So they're really, like, cautious. Um, but then, again, it's business at the end of the day. So he's going into a business meeting. And like you said, you know, Jonah Hill's back there. And you kind of – and Brad Pitt's character is, like, eyeballing him. Like, what is this guy doing? Why is he – why is this GM that's been in the league for a while? Why is he listening to this just, like, kid that just got out of college?
0: Well, I've heard also is the uh... – I think this reminds me of, I think it was Carlos Pena the trade with that GM where they were like, yeah, I want this player like 200000 in cash. I need to refill my soda machines for three years. like (laughs) Exactly. Like the little shit like that. Like my favorite thing is the, I don't know if you know this story, but when the Celtics drafted Bill Russell ages ago, they were like the third or fourth pick in the draft. And Bill Russell, unsurprisingly, was not considered a number one pick because of the whole race thing back then, which was horrible. And the Royals which was this old team that doesn't exist anymore, had the second pick. And Red Auerbach, the GM at the time, promised the Royals if they didn't draft Bill Russell, he would give them an ice capade show. And the ice capades were this big women's figure skating like theme or like play that everyone wanted to see. It was like the most upstate thing ever. And sure enough, they got the play and the Celtics had Russell. And I just love that. You think that this stuff doesn't get made up, but no, like literally teams would have conversations about, yeah, can you give me like four years worth of Lay's chips? And, like, and again, like a deal. <laughs>
1: and what's funny about that is like it goes back to what we we're talking about, about locker room morale, right, and having that strong team chemistry and eliminating kind of players that don't, that take away from that. The reason why he asks for the, 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 uh, the vending machines being refilled is because David Justice tells him like, why do I have to pay $2 for a, a soda, right, so, you know by having him supply the vending machines, he's taking away that cost for him and he's improving locker room morale because now we have soda in the machine and we have it. So like, you know, it's easily accessible.
0: This kind of ties in with like the next scene, which I think is kind of like a two for one, where then it's uh, the Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill scene in the parking garage. And then this leads to one of my more underrated scenes, not my personal favorite, but a good one, which is the the, uh, Brad Pitt phone call where he goes, would you have drafted me in the first round? And then he goes, like, I think I would. No, you're bullshitting me. Would you have drafted me in the first round? He goes, actually, I would have drafted you ninth, and you would have been, like, with this contract not guaranteed, and you would have been out of the league or whatever. And he goes, you're hired. Like, because it shows how, again, like, it's not just simply about, like, stats or the hype of a prospect. It's way more about, like, what is the value this guy really gives you to this team? Again, we stress this enough, but value, 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 how a team values a player is oftentimes so subjective, and that makes the – or breaks a team being – getting their franchise guy or not. We've seen this time and time again with any league, football, basketball, baseball, where one move makes the entire difference of do you have a franchise superstar on your roster or did you just let your rival team take him right after you?
1: Yeah, and I know I've said I have a lot of favorite scenes in this movie, but again, that one in the parking garage is one of the best scenes because it's he he needs to know if Jonah Hill's character is bullshitting him or not because the rest of his scouts the way they're thinking, again, the traditionalism that we've talked about, they think a certain way about, like, traits and hype around players and all that type of stuff, that traditionalist thinking. He needs to know for a fact that Jonah Hill's character doesn't care about the hype, doesn't care about, he's not going to be a yes man. Like, he, again, value, right, efficiency. That's what he's thinking. So when he tell, when he asks him, like, if, where he would have drafted him, he's like, cut the bullshit, where would you have drafted me? And he tells him the real answer then he's like, okay, you're hired, you're in, because he understands, he understands that Jonah Hill's character understands what they're working towards, which is efficiency and building a baseball team around cost effectiveness.
0: And then this leads into one of my personal favorite scenes. It's an argument to be the best one, which is the second general manager meeting where it's uh, Brad Pitt's character, Jonah Hill, and then the rest of the scouts. And he, they start throwing names out, and then Brad Pitt goes, actually, no, I want this guy. Why? And then he, like, snaps to Jonah Hood and he goes, because he gives you runs. <laughs> or I think it was he gets on base first. Yeah, he gets on base <laughs> And then he does it for, like, two more guys. Why? Because he, he gets me on base. And then it's, like, this guy is, like, 40 years old. He's been out of the league. You, you're telling me you want to sign this guy even though he has, or, like, a nerve issue in his arm for the last half decade, like, that whole thing. It again goes to show that the diamond in the roughness for this movie is absolutely crucial Bunny any franchise. And also yeah. I think more importantly, it's Brad Pitt's probably best thing of the film.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then like, after that, he's like, don't, don't make me say it again. Like I'm <laughs> going to make him say that he gets on base. Uh, right? I'm going to make him
0: snap. <laughs>
1: exactly. So, um, yeah, that's, I mean, that's awesome. Uh, Jonah Hill's character in that one again he's he's he he plays that really well where he's like he's the new guy and he's kind of there and nervous because everyone's looking at him like who the hell is this like kid that you just brought in so he's kind of nervous but then he's you know he's doing his job and then Brad Pitt all the confidence in the world's like no 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 that guy this is who I want right like you said yeah. like they're all doubting him about the like the nerve issues or he hasn't been in the league or he's really old he's like he gets on base and it goes back that's that's it's the underdog story, and it's the underdog story not only with the organization, what the a's, but with the players because the players also have a sense of self doubt, like Chris Pratt, who we're gonna you know talk about later, which is later which is than I can, actually. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, that it leads into that Chris Pratt scene where we see the shyness of Chris Pratt. Which, by the way, it's very like creepy seeing like a young Chris Pratt before he actually got like big, like the big name. You know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you've seen the. You've probably seen the Anchorman, but the uh, Paul Rudd being in the Anchorman, where it's like, whoa. Mid two thousands, Paul Rudd before all the Ant Man stuff and some of the big name stuff. Like it, it, it is crazy seeing these like actors like eight years or ten years before like their main career kind of begins. So I, it was pretty cool, pretty, pretty like little symbolism of Chris Pratt's career how he kind of went from this super shy guy to this very like oh big name big name Hollywood player.
1: Yeah, and it's funny like the contrast in characters too because this character is very like shy to himself and he's playing like Star Lord. Who's very like, arrogant, you know. So it's really like a shock, kind of seeing him like this. But it um it provides some like sense of like sentiment towards his character because he doesn't really believe in himself one hundred percent. And uh and Brad Pitt, like he's like no, like you get on base, you're efficient. Like we we want you to play. And I think uh yeah, know I he he ends up proving himself towards the end. But yeah, it's he does a really good job with this character.
0: And then we get kind of into the actual season itself so finally after like a long time we get into the uh opening day stuff what i love about this movie secretly is the graphics of like showing like the standing so it kind of like you don't need, again you don't need to know baseball to know like hey like this team's in last place look at like this list they're all the way at the bottom stuff like that but then also you have the stuff with like the kind of right before the trade stuff where it's like oh what this franchise is doing is horrible and you know like they're taking all these guys that are unproven or washed up or not really doing anything. Like they should fire the GM, that whole thing. And one thing I love, it's kind of a little commentary on like how sports people talk where again, like they say like, Oh, why didn't this team does this or this for the most part, because there are some stupid GMs out there, especially in the NBA, like dear God, there is like a method to the madness for some of these moves. Like it's not just like teams aren't just trading away certain guys for just no reason. Like there has to be some logic behind them.
1: Yeah, what you said is perfect, and it happens a lot. Again, it's—it's. It's, I think it's kind of the, the nature of the beast when it comes to sports, but um, they show it in the film with, like, the guys on the radio talk shows talking about, like, what the hell is Billy Bean doing, whatever. Like, it's really easy uh, to be, like, an armchair quarterback, right? Like, uh, like you're an armchair GM, armchair coach, where you're, like, talking about decisions that are made from your chair at home, like, in front of the TV, yelling at it, like, oh, why'd you put this guy in? Why'd you send this guy down? Why this guy on the bench, right? but um again like you said there is for the most part a method to the madness uh for the most part you would hope your favorite teams right yeah Um, but yeah it's like we know the reason why he's making these decisions uh and that to us that's why he's the uh, protagonist because we know they don't know entirely about like the efficiency and the the, all that stuff that, that we're seeing behind the scenes right so it's it's kind of setting up that okay we're we're Trusting the process, kind of. We're gonna make a couple more moves, but then you know, ultimately, we know what our goal is. And he's kind of struggling because you know he's at a crossroads right now. He doesn't know uh, if it's gonna be hundred percent successful or not. But that's like, again, that's the nature of the beast of being a, a general manager in sports. You don't know a hundred percent what your what the outcomes of your decisions are gonna be.
0: Well, you kind of touched on something that aged really well in this film, which is the duality between experience versus the new perspective, because what's funny is that Jonah Hill is like the main star of like, hey, the analytics movement is zigging while everyone's zagging. Whereas like there's all these old scouts who are like, I've had experience in the league for 26 years. I know what it's like to read what a baseball talent is. And then what's funny is that then you have the sports commentators who usually for the most part have no experience in baseball talking about people who actually have experience in baseball, that little dynamic is that I think it gets pointed out a lot. We get into one of my other favorite scenes, which is the first locker room scene where Brad Pitt, like there's the guy dancing, like break dancing, or whatever. And Brad Pitt slams the bat and goes like, is this what like losing feels like? Is this what you think losing is? And then there's like the toilet that flush. He goes, no, that's what losing feels like. And then we get into the trade season where they ship out Carlos Pena they there's like some of those like conversations where he's like Brad Pitt tells Jonah Hill like you're going to tell this guy he's been traded good luck some of those kind of dynamics behind the scenes of a franchise this movie again really loves to emulate pretty well especially with kind of those trades but also the people literally getting moved like we see how it really affects them oftentimes psychologically too
1: yeah so I love that scene too uh in the locker room when Jamie Giambi which is Jason Giambi's brother um the guy that they <laughs> lost at the beginning his brother when he's like dancing and celebrating and yeah and he's like nope that's we're losing and you can't be celebrating right now like that's not the attitude that we need to have and then again he moves him he moves Carlos Pena uh and it again it really does show that uh how hard that is that job is when it comes to relationships with players too because it's hard to form that and just move them around like that And because when you're moving a player you're not just moving him to a different team right it's not just like a like a number, okay, this guy's going here, like a video game, right? Like you're moving a whole family. That guy has to put his kids in a different school, right? So again, uh, it played w- really well by, you know, the, the active plays Carlos Pena and the active plays uh, Jeremy Javi, um, you know, like encapsulating that part. Um, and yeah, no, they they just, excellent job. It's written so well. Uh, the scenes when he's trading them around, again, some of my favorites in, in sports films. Yeah, that's no,
0: great. Yeah, and then it leads us to my personal arguably favorite scene, which is the trade deadline scene that you alluded to, where he's like calling the four different GMs and he's like, uh, I'll give you this guy. Are you trying to fleece me? No, I'll just give him to you straight up. I want, I want your guy. He's like it, it was for that relief picture from the Indians where he's like, this guy has no value whatsoever. Like, hey, no, only no, we're gonna take him. Actually, the Giants have an offer. Oh, let me just call the Giants real quick, you know, and uh give them something else so that way they they do not take the uh relief pitcher's contract. Again, another example where like GMs, the power shift of GMs to just change the league and what goes on behind the phones and, you know, beyond what we just hear as like normal sports fans is absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah, exactly. I love that scene because it shows like how dynamic he is and how how quick on his feet, how quick on your feet you have to be like not only as a GM, but like specifically during the trade deadline, when there's all these moving pieces going around and where team needs are such an important uh, topic. Right. So when, when he figures out that there's another team that's trying to get this guy that he wants, or or this, this guy is going around to the other team and he figures out what team it is that's trying to ask for him. And he's just, it's, it's great. He's he, he is like, going into business from self investigating like okay I need to figure this out and it just shows like how like the intricacies of trading and it's not just like calling up a team and being like okay this guy for this guy whatever it's not a quick process like that right although it is fast in the movie it's like there's a lot of moving pieces with other teams and teams that are in the hunt for certain players that you have to you know, figure out before. Well, I was like, unless it's the the NBA where they have
0: sign-in trades ready to go by the start of free agency, because that doesn't... Oh, yeah, of course. course.
1: (laughs) When it comes to the trade deadline and there's certain players that are on the trade block or they're on the market, there's a lot of teams that are eyeing for those players. So it's really important (laughs) for a guy like Billy Bean who kind of wants a certain guy or doesn't want a certain guy, wants to move uh, someone else to know who everybody wants. And it's something uh, in, in all sports that you have to know for the draft, right? Like in the draft, when there's a, uh, position that's really, um, it's really valued and a lot of teams want it, you kind of need to formulate the board on like, okay, this team is going to want this guy. So maybe we trade up, maybe we trade down, right? That kind of thing. So it really shows how uh, important, I guess, like communication is as a general manager, as a front office uh, position holder in sports, where you need to not just be in touch with your organization and your needs, but the needs of all the other teams.
0: Then we get to our last three scenes. Arguably, you can make a case each of these should be the best scene. You have the 20 game uh, win streak. Uh clip where Chris Pratt hits the game-winning home run. The A's are up 11-0, the Royals score 11 straight, and then Chris Pratt hits this walk-off home run. That actually happened in real life, and they ended it absolutely perfectly. And we have the Brad pick. He goes to watch the game. Then he goes into the gym, and he's looking down, and then he hears the clip of the bat and then looks back up at the TV screen sees this ball go flying into the stands. You have this, then the meeting in Boston scene where – uh, he meets with like an important person from like the Boston Red Sox franchise and says like, "You the New York Yankees average like one point four million dollars per win or paid one point four million dollars per win. You paid two hundred thousand bucks or something crazy like that. You lost your three best players and somehow improved your record. All this crazy stuff. And what I didn't know is that they almost made him the highest paid GM in the league at basically thirteen million dollars. Like that's big money for two thousand eleven. Like that's a or uh, pardon me two thousand uh." Uh, two slash three like that's a lot of money to give to one person in the early 2000s financially
1: yeah and it's again like that's another uh scene where brad pitt's character's at like another crossroads because he has a, another you know big time offer but it's i guess it shows like that what you know when you're a general manager the decisions that you have to make and like when you do a good job now like you've been that underdog of like okay now we need to compete with those teams and then those teams now seeing the shift in like analytics right like you're talking about like the owner of the I think it was the owner yeah like you said like a big time guy in, in the Red Sox I think it was the owner
0: we'll also the owner yeah
1: he takes note of that and he's like okay he only paid this amount per win and this is on a team that can't afford to do that right so Red Sox are you know big budget big market team can you do with us where we can't afford that but we also like we we can form a stacked roster around this while still you know being really efficient and having that money so you know that gains interest and it shows the upward mobility sometimes of like you're a gm but there's also other gm jobs that are available that you could be really good at and a lot of times with those jobs unfortunately when there's you know movement uh usually it's downwards because you know good gms aren't necessarily going to there is not that much upward mobility in other sports, but in baseball, having a bigger budget on a bigger, you know, budget team, that is something that that's a possibility when, in other sports is salary cap. So it's not really that likely. It it shows the differences in baseball and baseball thinking than other sports.
0: So we reached the end of kind of the main scenes here, Chris, I'll let you go first with favorite scene. Uh, Out of all these we've talked about, unless there's one, I'm not, I'm missing out here. Favorite scene. This is kind of one that's hard to choose from because you can make a case for like eight of these, I would be honest, but i i've narrowed down on mine i'll let you kind of take the floor though first okay so i have two favorite scenes i think right but i think i'll pick
1: one so the second one uh to me is the trade deadline one yes that that was like when he's on the phone because like i love all like you mentioned before like i love like when when it comes like sports management and just overall like i love the x's and o's of like how front offices work, and how the GMs make moves, because I'm that guy where, like, I will do, like, a 10-year franchise on MLB The Show, <laughs> or, like, on Out of the Park Baseball, and I'll, like, want to be in that position and do those things, so when, like, I see that happen on the screen, I'm, like, this is the coolest thing ever, right, but, um, no, I think my favorite scene, because it kind of sets the tone, is that Scouting uh meeting with Jonah Hill when he comes in. Oh, and talking about so real quick, I base. had
0: I had both those scenes in my top two exactly. Because so <laughs> well, real quick, what's nice about the scenes is that they're kind of like the same thing where they give you the behind the scenes. You can make the case that they both are the best scene for the acting of Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill, especially that second scene with Jonah Hill. I argue Brad Pitt's acting was better in the first scene we're talking about, but Jonah's was better in the second and vice versa. So, literally, I think I'm going to go with the tie, honestly. I'm cheating, but those two scenes. Yeah, are like they're the just so good. Scene. Yeah. So, wow, I think this is the first time on our film pod, like not just for you, but for any guests, we have the same exact favorite scene. So, history being made, I guess, on and off the uh, baseball diamond here. Of course, our next category, one of my personal favorites, what aged well with the film? This is, again, made in 2011, based on a mid-2000s franchise. We'll skip the shenanigans with all of the, you know, sports behind the scenes and the analytics movie because we kind of, you know, touched on that pretty well. Just from the film perspective for everything, uh, what kind of aged very well for you? And there's a lot to so choose from. Talking, so, I've got a whole list. Okay. So,
1: like, film perspective, you mean
0: like? Just, it, it could be anything. Like, it could be the acting, it could be the production wise. So, like, to list off a couple on my end, uh, some things I enjoyed about this film that aged well. Uh, the using the historical footage to make it seem like a documentary when it really wasn't, number one. The uh, just a humor thing of mine with the snap and point scene where he keeps going, like, uh, to snap to Jonah Hill that on Brad Pitt's end, I think is pretty good uh flashbacks I love that they flashback Brad Pitt's like former baseball career to kind of show like what the like the evaluation of a player and like what it means to like not be like live up to the hype different things like that so uh, I'll leave the floor kind of to you for some other things okay so I would say
1: that what I think um aged well for this movie was like the genre of sports dramas I guess right? So this film comes out in 2011. We see 42 starring Chadwick Boseman, like the story of Jackie Robinson. That comes out in 2013. In 2014, Draft Day comes out, which is another great sports drama about the Cleveland Browns. I think that genre of sports drama where it's, again, like we mentioned here before, where like you don't necessarily have to know 100% about the sport to understand what the story is. I think it's a great, I think sports overall, are a great like narrative. Um, it, has, it has a lot of strengths with, with, with movies and with like storytelling per se. And then I think like uh, they, they say it, um like it gets said in the film, like how can you not be romantic about baseball, <laughs> right? It's like, it's, it's such like a, right? It's such sometimes like a niche thing of, 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 of baseball because of the traditionalism of it. And because it's not as, as really as popular as other sports because of its traditionalism but baseball itself and like sports in general have such a, a tie with storytelling because of like, you have underdog stories when it comes to like injuries and small market teams like like there are here, or in the case of 42 with Jackie Robinson, right? Like the, the racism aspect as told through sports. Um, I think for the genre of sports drama, and we see it again, like I mentioned before with draft day with the Cleveland Browns being an underdog, um, I think it it does a great job at at telling stories through sports that aren't entirely like you need to know sports to understand the movie because a lot of those narrative aspects are seen in all forms of media, all forms of movies and television. um, Like those, those underdog stories that they're telling.
0: Yeah. Without a doubt, this film is definitely in the Mount Rushmore of like pure drama films if you're talking about like a sports movie. So I definitely agree with you there. Some other things I liked the Debate on big market big market versus small market of how you build a team. I think it is the only movie by far in a way that I can think of where it actually, if you just have never been into sports before, you can always understand what the perspective is of like building through a team that just doesn't have enough money and is not in a big city like New York City or Los Angeles. So I really like that. The experience as a valuable contribution to management debate aged so damn well when you consider that. Literally a couple of years after this movie comes out, football has a major, major spike in analytics. Basketball was already going through a revolution and arguably has gotten way better. Baseball still uses those statistics. Like that by far and away, I think is like, wow, like this movie is ahead of its time on that. The computer montages where they show like the different computer screens of like the numbers. And like Jonah Hill says that line where it's like these 26, I think players are going to be the players that help us win a title or put us in the best position to win the most games. I think he says something like that, which is really cool. And then of course the thing that gets mentioned the most, the win streak, the 20 game win streak. So Chris, here are the, this win streak is fifth all time for most wins ever in a row by a franchise. Here are the other teams on this list. The, the, New York Giants from 1916, like, big, like, holy crap, that's ages ago. They won 26 games in a row. Uh, the Cleveland Indians now uh, – do they ever change their name or are they still co- the Cleveland Indians?
1: They're still uh, – they're still considering They They changed the logo, but they're still, like, in it's talks still- about what the new name is going to be. Gotcha. So, that
0: team, 2017 wins uh, 22 games in a row. As of now, besides this team we're talking about, the only two teams in the 21st century to win at least 20 games or more. And then here we go. The Chicago or the Chicago White Stockings, like, dear God, from 1880, won 21 games in a row, as well as the Chicago Cubs in 1935. And then tied for fifth, you have this team, the Oakland A's, the Providence Grays from 1884, and the St. Louis Maroons from 1884. So in other words, if you just recap that whole list, out of the top If you tie all all the teams that are the top seven teams with the most win streaks, uh, most uh, longest win streak ever, three of the teams are from the 1880s. One team is in the Cleveland Browns, the modern day team, and the rest are from the mid 1900s. So in other words, this A's team is the one of the biggest outliers in professional sports history. Half the teams on this list were before like our great, great, great grandparents were even born. Like, what the hell?
1: (laughs) And, again, the best part of that is that they are, like, right, because because it depends on, like, the scale that you're looking at, right? Like, not only are – did they win that many games, they won that many games not paying that much money, right? So, like, it's something to be said that, you know, you got yeah, the, the team like $200 mentioned million.
0: Real, real quick, Chicago right? and New York were, like, four of the, like, eight, the seven teams I just mentioned. Those are, like, the biggest markets ever.
1: Exactly. So, not, not only is it – if you look at it like that, like the, the current day sports, like current day teams that are spending like 200 to 300 million dollars on their rosters aren't getting to this level of like, uh, not necessarily success because a win streak, you know, it's, it's a win streak, but winning that many games in a row when you're looking at it. Yeah, they are the biggest outlier, not only because of the time in which it happened, but because of the money, the, the little money that was spent.
0: Well, I also put asterisks on if two teams in 1884 somehow happen to both have 20 game win streaks or I think it was yeah, 20 game win streaks. That's a bit of a uh, 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 statistical, you know, a little asterisk. Yeah, exactly. What the hell? But anyway, so that was baseball in the 1800s. So there we go. Uh, there's that traditionalism there, I guess. So that's all I have for what age. Well, now comes the harder part. I don't know if there's much that didn't age well in this film. The only the two things I put down were Rudy Giuliani because apparently every New York city mayor between, you know, 2002 and to now sucks. And then I put here the fake all-stars only because the idea of like the Carlos Pena's of the world being contributing players is like a narrative that slowly like became not true. And we've seen this in the NBA, especially where there's these big stats guys that just don't help your teams win. Uh, I remember like Trey Young and Devin Booker have outgrown that show, but for the longest time, dear God, they were like, the ultimate 25 point scores that never helped your team win more than 20 games in a season. So Chris, I'll leave this one up to you. Is there anything that really didn't age well in this film? I have one thing that I'm saving for now, but I'll let you kind of take the floor first. So
1: what I'll say hasn't aged well, I wouldn't say, I don't know if it hasn't aged well, or it just hasn't improved since then is the situation of like the salary cap in baseball, right? Because no, we that's have a big this, one, Yeah. We have this success story with the A's. But since then, there's not that much to talk about. And real
0: quick, could you make a case that this movie kind of says, like, look at this miracle season? And then it's like, hey, minus this one miracle, no shit, the teams with the biggest markets have ended up being some of the best teams in Major League Baseball for the last 20 years.
1: Yeah, like, I I think that's my biggest takeaway from the film is, is, is that, like, they haven't they haven't made a World Series, I believe, since no, before no, this movie even no. happened, right? Like they haven't right even made it, like gotten there. So I think that says a lot about salary caps in baseball. And I think this that the overall takeaway of this movie is that this was a major success story, like you said, but it's still a problem because look at look at all the work that went in here, look at all the success that they had, and they still didn't get to a championship, not only at that, that season, but since that season. So there's, I think there's such a big conversation that needs to be had with baseball when it comes to the salary, like not, not having a salary cap. And the problem with that is, is that like, as time goes by, baseball is getting less popular because of the traditionalism of it. And that, who knows what that means for like money and the bargaining agreements and, you know, making a salary cap uh, be existent Because when you have a team that makes that much money, and they can't spend it like who knows what problem comes up with that but I think something needs to be said about making baseball more modern right and I think this 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 movie does a good job at that of shying away from that traditionalism and looking at statistics I think that's a bigger story that needs to be had or a bigger conversation that needs to be had with baseball when it comes to modernizing the game uh those unwritten rules that exist in baseball about like you know throwing at players and stuff we, we need to shy away from that like traditionalism and the unwritten rules and the, and make the game more fun, you know, have the players celebrate without having to get hit in the head within a hundred mile an hour fastball on their next at bat. Right. And baseball needs to become more exciting so that we bring in more viewers and we bring in more, you know, money for teams in general. And I think some of that has to do with the lack of competitiveness that exists with teams like the Marlins and the A's uh, less the A's because they've been making it to like uh, the playoffs more recently But teams like that where, you know, they don't have that competitiveness and that does not build the market per se because then what fans are going to show up if you're not winning, right? So I think they need to modernize. They need to be more youthful uh, and be with the times like other sports that we're seeing where there is celebration and there is, you know, an excitement uh, in the arenas. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm glad because I'm glad you brought that up. It wasn't on my list, but I'm glad you mentioned this because I have three points that – I want to elaborate on that. Really, you said it best. The traditionalism is the big one on a couple fronts, especially with what they're in age with this film with the salary cap. Number one, if you look at every major professional sport, baseball is almost identical as it was in the 1900s, as it is right now. Like, in basketball, there was different revolutions. In football, there's been different revolutions. I don't know if I can, like, say one. I don't know if you can either. Is there anything baseball-wise that's just evolved, like, drastically? Because it kind of is the same game as it was now, as it was in 1950. Like, is it crazy to say that? Like,
1: I can't. I can't name it. <laughs> besides, like, the besides like the shift towards statistics, I really can't name something that I see as, as, as like, a game-changer, right? Because even yeah. in, like, the American League and the National League, they're, they're trying to start instituting it now, but, like, pitchers are still hitting in the National League, but not the American League. Right? So, like the American League has a DH, which is like the, you know, somebody that hits for the pitcher, but the National League still has pitchers hitting, which isn't exciting, right? Like, it's not, nobody wants to see the pitcher hit because they're going to strike out nine times out of 10. So, uh, I, I can't say that there's been anything that's been like a, a massive uh, change when it comes to baseball, uh, like that when it comes to the rules or making things more exciting. What we have seen is like unwritten rules are still a thing where if a player celebrates, and, you know, they're, they get too cocky for the other pitchers ego. They start throwing uh, at their head or throwing at their like legs and being dangerous. And that's not something we want to see.
0: Well, and then there's the other point you mentioned, which is that baseballs become more boring. Hey, I have an idea. Maybe don't have an 180 something game regular season. Like, cause there's, a, there's two arguments to this. The arguments that, Hey, the reason why baseball is so boring is that you don't have as each game doesn't value as much compared to another football. Like take football, for instance, where there's 17 games. Each of those games matter because it's the difference between you being a one seed and a five seed or in the postseason and like a top 10 pick in the draft. Whereas, and in basketball, it's been especially kind of the same where it's like, maybe not to where like the, after the all-star break, but at least the first two thirds of the year, it's like, Hey, like, if we don't do well, these first two-thirds of the year tell us where we are as a team, and then from there we go forward. In baseball, there isn't really much value in the regular season. It's like, hey, we've got eight, eight times to beat this team, you know, a total of yeah. 24 times. Like, there's no value.
1: I'll say, like, in baseball, it was a big thing like three years ago where the last day of the season there were I – can't, I can't remember if it was three or four teams that all had a chance to get one seed into the playoffs. So on that last day, I, rem- I remember
0: this, this was like so on that last day years was years the
1: now. most exciting day of baseball ever. But you know what the problem with that is? We get that with every sp- other sport every year where the last week of the season, there's like three teams vying for one spot.
0: And real quick, all cool, you, you keep going, yeah.
1: Yeah. So in baseball, it was super celebrated this one day where this was going on, right? And and those three teams had a chance at one because it's, it's such like, it, it's such an outlier when it comes to baseball, having having that because of the amount of games that get played in the standings, right? Like the differences in wins are going to tend to be larger than in other sports because there's more games played. So the fact that three teams had the chance to get one seed in the playoffs was such a big thing when in every other sport we see that all the time.
0: Well, and how about the NBA has this playing game now. The NFL, literally, again, there's only 17 games, so the difference between being 11-7 and 7 and 7-11 is very similar. Um, what else? Uh, I remember like for the NBA, like even though it was two small markets with Denver and Minnesota, remember that game where it was winner take all, where it was the Jimmy Butler, Timberwolves, and Jokic's like early nuggets. And they're the winner of that regular season game, got the eight seed and made it to the postseason. Baseball doesn't really have that. Like at some point, the margin between teams is so massive that you don't, there isn't a, an entertainment value to that. And then this leads into my final point, the salary cap culminating with what you can elaborate on where shifting financials, in the baseball league, with the Major League Baseball League, with this lockout now, where it's like, is, is this the moment where baseball finally says, hey, for better or worse, we need to financially change how these teams operate, we need to change the narrative, and we need to really improve the product that we're putting on the court, or I guess in this case, on the field.
1: Yeah, so I think, again, I think that's the greatest thing that that uh, is at stake with baseball, because that's what will eventually make baseball more competitive and more compelling. Is that salary gap? But um, you see, I don't know if, if right now is like CBA negotiations is what's going to bring that about. And I think a lot of that has to do with the current commissioner, with Manfred, who is hated by a lot of the players because of his like still like traditionalist roots. Like players like um, you know, there's a lot of controversy around him, but like players like Trevor Bauer before you know that controversy hit with him and like allegations he was and him and Alex Rodriguez is trying to do this with the young players now is like to form their brand right so not necessarily be like influencers but to be out there to put baseball like a good name on baseball to bring that excitement to it right we're seeing young young players like Tatis and like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who are celebrating who are like bringing that youthfulness to baseball right so I think moving towards that and that what while also trying to bring in that salary cap is what's going to grow baseball in the future for like future generations because right now i think like you'd be super naive to say that you think baseball is growing baseball is not growing in popularity right now it's 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 been declining well, it's growing so, in boredom
0: so <laughs> exactly
1: because people don't want to go to a nine inning baseball game for the marlins who are like un- unless they start to grow like well I- especially if
0: the game's four hours long and it is one exactly day yeah so. like of
1: course i love baseball so i'm going to enjoy it but like my friends that don't necessarily want to see like a one nothing baseball game or like a pitching duel that goes zero zero until the ninth inning nobody's really going to be enjoying that as much right so I think they need to figure it out whether it's with Manfred or in the future like the the salary cap situation and I don't know what that does with budgets I don't know what that does uh, as a whole but I think when it comes to competitiveness competitiveness and excitement and youthfulness is what's going to help baseball grow
0: because we're a little over time, we'll make this category uh, quick. But best line from the film, we've talked about a couple throughout, but, like, if you had to pick one, what would you go with off the top of your head?
1: Hey, I think it's the one you – well, again, like – it's <laughs> Like the five I see. <laughs> yeah, it's the – there's rich teams, there's poor teams. Yeah. And then, like, when he talks about, like, the 20 piles of shit and then there's, like, us. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's a good I, one. But also that – that um, the, I think the, the most important one in the whole movie is, like, he gets on base, right, when it comes yeah. to efficiency. So
0: that was up there for me. I think my favorite one's probably the uh, – your goal shouldn't be to buy players. Your goal should be to buy wins. And to do that, you need to buy uh, runs. So I think that was my personal favorite. I will say I like this, the first general manager scout meeting where they go. Uh, Brad Pitt says, if he's a good hitter, then why doesn't he hit good?
1: <laughs> That's a great one. So, That's a great one. I, I completely forgot about that. <laughs> so,
0: also, I love the: uh, his girlfriend's ugly, and an ugly girlfriend means no confidence, <laughs> which is – for again, two, you can get away with that in 2011,
1: <laughs> right? Like, and, and again, that's another one that shows like the like how meaningless what they were, what those Disgusting. scouts were were, ta- were just were talking about because there's nothing to do with like anything of importance like statistics. And for us now, where, like we see statistics play a big role in sports, looking back at that, we're like, how stupid is that, right?
0: I also love this the line, uh, "Would you have drafted me in the first round?" Because it kind of reminds me of like first rule about five clubs. Don't talk about five club kind of that similar mindset here delivery
1: is really similar
0: yeah so some fun facts about this movie i did not know uh number one chris pratt actually was not scheduled to be in the film because he was too fat did not know that but this is again 2011 chris pratt not modern day bill chris pratt um a lot of the scouts in the film were actual mlb scouts past and uh, present which is really really cool did not know that uh The Fenway scene, they only had one day to shoot in Fenway. So that scene at the end of the movie was all in the same day when it came to production. Um, The big one is, I think, I don't know if you saw this online at any point, but the Art uh, Howie uh, manager, apparently the real life guy hated the movie because they thought he portrayed him horribly, which I actually kind of, I don't, I kind of disagree. I think he, he was a stubborn GM who didn't see what Brad Pitt was trying to do. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back there. And then my favorite fact is that, did not know this, but if you remember the end of the movie where uh, he has that drink uh, and he's like sipping it, he actually leaves a little bit of it left and it's supposed to be a symbolism of, they were ju- this close to winning, to making it to the World Series with the strategy. So I did not know that until later. With that said, we've made it to the end of this pod. I'll leave it with the same question as always every film pod out of all movies we picked this one, but it is so historically important, everything with this film, with the sports movement, with the revolution of analytics. What's the reason why this movie calls you back to now and will probably 10 and 20 years from now?
1: Um, I think the, uh, definitely like what it says about baseball, um, like how how it's, you know, trying to aim towards the future when it comes to shying away from traditionalism. Like I said before, but overall, like what it means for um, storytelling through sports, I think, is one of my favorite. I, like I talked I touched on that before, but that's like I love I love that because of the similar narratives that we see. Like we see storylines in sports all the time, um, you know, some happy underdog stories and some controversial ones like what we're seeing with Kyrie today while we're filming this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, where that's really controversial, but it's a dramatic storyline. Right. So I think the idea of telling a story through sports that not only sports fans, but everybody can enjoy. Uh, i think i that, that's what calls to me also like again the, the behind the scenes general manager stuff i love that like front office stuff but yeah just storytelling through sports and uh that's yeah i think that's what i'll leave it with
0: well chris another awesome baseball pod i guess well maybe first baseball pod, but definitely a great film pod thank you so much for joining yet again for another film friday
1: thank you i love these i'll be happy to be back another time <laughs>